Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 24 of the podcast, the topic is the future of the second half of life. Our guest is Tom Mobus, founder of 10x Grow, whose mission is to help small companies grow in dramatic ways and is part of a plethora of nonprofit initiatives in the US and abroad. We talk about our mutual background at MIT's Industrial Liaison Program, why Tom has come out of retirement for COVID-19, which, echoing Buddhist thinking, is a noble moment. He tells us how he helps Main Street businesses pivot and learn to operate under new conditions and learn from each other. We discuss his project to connect young people in America and China to create wise people who will learn to collaborate before their minds are colored with what society tries to feed them. Finally, we learn how the protest generation of the 60s might be rising again and what they are concerned with now. Tom, how are you doing this morning? I am doing just great, Tron. It's very good to see and uh, talk with you. Yeah, let's get right into it. I'm, I'm excited. So, Tom, you've done many, many things. We have one career piece in common. We've been at the uh, MIT Industrial Liaison Program, but you've then, you then went on to the UC Irvine and you have built an innovation initiative called Octane that we're going to talk about. And now you have this uh, consultancy 10x grow, a lot of activity on your end. I wanted to unpack your background a little, Tom. What, what would you say has been the most formative in, in everything that you've done? The most formative? Well, I spent 17 years working at MIT. So uh, it, that's in terms of the chunk of my career and the amount of change that I went through, that was absolutely uh, the most formative. Because I, I, I guess I would say, uh, in a way, I went into working at MIT as a boy, a young man, 30, and I left there at the age of 49. And in the process, I changed... Uh, quite a lot. I, I kind of became a leader. I represented MIT all over the globe and and had the chance to do some tremendous things working with some of the smartest people in the world. So that was probably the most formative thing that I did in my career. And it and representing MIT and having to step up my game to that level brought about a lot of development in, in me and and made me very confident. I mean, I had to operate at the level that MIT is at. I had to truly represent MIT in all of what it is. It's a tremendous institution. And I had to go out and operate at that level in order uh, to fulfill the job that I had. And I feel that I was able to do that. I gained the respect of the leadership team, the presidents uh, and leadership of MIT and the faculty. And, uh, and, and sort of that prepared me really to do a lot of other things in life after the time that I spent there. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Isn't it a fascinating institution in that there's just so much variety these days in terms of what counts as technology and, and also the kind of industrial interest that is baked in at MIT is, is fairly unique. I mean, a lot of top schools have industry initiatives, but let's just stop for one second around this idea that the industrial liaison program at MIT, which was created, I think now more than 77 years ago, something 19, around there. 1948. Yeah. Right. When it started. Right. That's the year and, I was uh, born. So I, you know, I felt that connection with it. Yeah. <laughs> so you remember that. I do remember but that. The I don't remember thing, it starting, but yeah. <laughs> Right, right. The un one of the unique things, right, is if I remember the anecdote well, it wasn't even MIT that had the idea of starting an industry program. It was industry coming to MIT saying something to the effect of, you know, we really don't understand how to make use, best use of, of the institution. It's very chaotic for us from the outside. And clearly a lot of advanced things are going on. 
here's some money, please start the program to to actually facilitate our access to, you know, what is your version of that anecdote? I'm sure you have told it many times. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, I, I, I told the story as it was MIT's idea, but you're probably right, you know, that, that uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm sure it was some businessman sitting over a uh, glass of scotch at, you know, in the evening one day with an MIT guy who said, hey, you know, we ought to do something with this because you've got all this uh, technology from the wartime research uh, that was done. Right. Vannevar Bush and, you know, uh, some really visionary scientists who invested a lot in laboratories at places like MIT and you know, Draper Laboratories, the radar facilities. And and it, yes, it was it was the uh, the growth of American industry was was in all of that research. And how do you use it? How do you get it out? And the industrial yeah. liaison program became the, the the first place where that started to happen. And yeah. you know, the interesting thing is, it happened in a similar way at Caltech. Same year, you know, they created industrial liaison program. So there were two uh, programs that started at the same time. Now I remember visiting Caltech when I was an industrial liaison officer, and um, this would have been in the uh, I don't know early 1990s or late 1980s. And at the time, the, the liaison program at MIT had about 40 people working for it. And at Caltech, there were like five. And they, the people in that liaison program at Caltech had a very hard time getting the support of the faculty. The faculty did not want to work with industry. Whereas at MIT, it was a routine that faculty supported the liaison program because they liked working with industry and they felt that there was a lot to learn. So... You yeah, know, and a, I'm sure that might have changed. Oh, I'm sure. It, it yeah, it's a different institution. I'm, I'm sure it has changed around the world uh, too, right? Because industry has become oh. such a major funder of technological activity. But there is something unique about having that legacy and the, the amount of years where this has been going on. And as you say, the scale has always been unique there. And, you know, still the program has many officers that are in charge of, you know, each area, but it makes for... Uh, a sustainable effort where where you know these officers actually know what's going on at the institution and and like you said m most professors are thoroughly supportive of, of the effort and that makes a bi big difference um i wanted to bring up one other thing in your background you you told me you're actually a musician yeah yeah you know, i've been a musician for basically my whole life that's sort of one of the things i've done all of my life so uh yeah i bought a guitar in 1964 with the first money I ever made, and I still have that same guitar, and it's you know served me well over time. So that's kind of always in the background, thumping, playing, playing music, uh, no matter what else I'm doing. Uh, so it's great. You have to send me. me a clip of that so we can include it in the podcast. Uh, okay, I will. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. great. Well, let's talk about one particular thing uh, that that is, uh, I guess, in your background, but it's very much still in the future. So, in two thousand and three, you co-founded Octane, which is the Orange County Technology Action Network. Tell us about that network. Well, you know, it's interesting that we started with the MIT Segway because the idea behind Octane was really to recreate in uh, Orange County, California, south of LA, a, a a system like happened organically around MIT which is a lot of uh, students, graduate students and faculty starting companies uh, based on the technology that was being you know, produced at the university. You know, at that, at, in the early days, it was just a few universities like Stanford and MIT, most well known. And now there's many more involved. Well, you know, when I left, I left MIT after 17 years, I went to the University of California, Irvine. And one of the things I found, it was, it was like they didn't have the recipe. You know, when I met faculty there who had really some good ideas, they had not a clue of what to do. You know, none of the lawyers around there knew anything about intellectual property. There were very few, you know, financiers who were tied in with risk capital, venture capital, um, and they had nowhere to go. You know, no one would help them. And the, and the intellectual property office had a very old school model of how to work. So nothing happened. So basically what, what occurred to make this story a bit short is I got to know some of the executives, uh, in, in Orange County, including of the, 
of the section of technology, which was focused on biomedical engineering and semiconductors. And over some time of building a board, we convinced ourselves that we ought to, to try to artificially create what was around uh, MIT. So we, you know, so I kind of had the idea first of creating this uh, ecosystem, what's now called all over the place, an ecosystem. And we made it happen. Uh, we studied other places. Uh, there had been some successful efforts in San Diego that was right nearby. So we modeled a little bit what had been in a program called Connect. And long story short, we, we built it and, and it became quite successful. It's now, uh, you know, 16, 17 people in this organization. They've grown over 350 um, innovation-based companies and helped those companies raise, I don't know, two and a half or more billion dollars uh, in, in startup funds. And they've now, they're now, you know, uh, a second generation organization. So they're now working with later stage companies and having a lot of impact on the economy there. So it's really, it's one of the most successful things I've done, you know, co is co-founding that organization. And some of the board members that I drew in at the beginning are still involved. The current chair was on the board 18 years ago. I mean, that's amazing uh, stick to I have to say, you know, so that was, yeah. th that was, a, you know, something I feel quite proud of in, in, in this career. And again, kind of the MIT influence <laughs> of learning how these things operate. So now we've talked about two pretty formative things and, and, and pretty important things in, in terms of uh, bringing technology to, to markets through university uh, engagements and, uh, uh, and stuff like that. But then you told me you came out of retirement because of COVID. No. And we're here to talk a little about, a bit about kind of opportunities in the second half of life. And it seems like kind of an unusual opportunity. You basically took a crisis and you said you came out of retirement. T tell me a little bit of, you know, uh, what, what has been your vision with going back and what, what does it mean? And what are your initial observations? I know you've even had some visions on, on kind of COVID and what this is and, and could uh, do to our society. Tell, you know, open-ended question. Yeah. Why are you out of retirement and what are your thoughts right now? Well, uh, so there's a couple of other slices of life that come together in this. And one, one has to do with a, uh, an odd little feature of my life that, you know, when I first uh, graduated from MIT, um, I got drafted and I did not, uh, I decided not to go into the draft. And instead, I created an, my own alternative career option, career, alternative service. I work for a crisis intervention uh, service. And basically, we were doing hotline crisis counseling. So I got involved in crisis intervention. You know, I was 22 years old, and I was helping uh, people deal with, you know, family crises and so forth. So I, I learned about how crisis affects people. And I also learned the skill of listening. You know, we did this on the telephone. So, so, so it's like working in Zoom. You know, I was practicing for Zoom for what's going to happen in later life, D t helping people to understand their situation, deal with their feelings about it, and then help to get through it. So, so just park that over on the side because it becomes relevant in this situation. Uh, and by the way, I always felt that that skill of listening was really key to my success at MIT. Because when I came in at MIT, it was all about what does MIT project out to the world? We have all this technology, and, and it was all about how do we sort of throw it out at industry. And when I got there and I began to become a, a manager, I, I was all then about how do we listen to what industry needs? And it was that shift that effectively kind of made me become a manager and the head of the ILP and really start to right. listen to how it's how so important MIT, yeah, you know it's how such that, an important message right yeah it's such no, an important it, message to listen because even if you have all the answers or you think you have all the answers right mit as great as it is only has answers to part of the question and 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 of correct. course if industry doesn't want it at that moment then now you're not 
selling it, really, you need to listen first and, and then adjust. So powerful uh, insight you had there. H- yeah, how was I, the reaction when you, when you presented this, that we need to listen? Well, it, it, it happened actually because um, there was a time in the growth of the, of the liaison program where you know, industry was beginning to change and the model of industry research was changing and MIT realized it had to change in response to that. And there were some efforts. We, we began to undertake an effort because the memberships in the uh, liaison program began to drop. So we had, um, we had our own effort, which was called uh, IQ Squared, Innovation and Quality Squared. This was back when Deming was around with quality. And it was based on some of Deming's stuff, which was listen to the customer, get in the fishbowl with the customer. So we started that about a year ahead of when the faculty started looking at, well, how do we work better with industry? And so we were at the, the advantage was we were slightly ahead of the faculty. So we then teamed up with the faculty. And I remember we were going around, we being senior faculty, you know, Michael Dertuzos, Nicholas Negropani, you know, a lot of the senior research faculty and and uh, department heads and deans and the presidents going around interviewing people from industry heads of research ceos and so forth and with a whole set of questions about what we thought you know and i remember it just it almost a quote of what you just said going to see the head of the uh, uh watson research lab at ibm and he said to me when i asked him well, we want to know what you think about universities you know he was a sort of a fiery guy and he said oh you really want to know well, let me tell you, I am so sick and tired of you guys coming in and telling me about some new damn operating system that we should be using. Why don't you come in and ask us what we need? And why don't you stop pretending like we don't know anything? You know, we are, you know, at the cutting edge too. Well, that said it all, <laughs> you know, and, and soon after that, you know, MIT started building programs like leaders in manufacturing where the faculty of that program were both MIT faculty and leaders from industry where we were welcoming people from industry in as co-equal teachers of the students and that a whole a whole new world of partnerships opened up you know with that so that was a big deal uh but you know, now let me bring this back in into um, you know the the story about the second half of life. You know, although I, I'll right. have to say, just th- this issue about how important listening is stuck with me the rest of my career. So I always felt that, and I, I should say the times when I listened. So when we created Octane, we listened to a lot of people before we created it. And I should say there were times I failed. And when I failed, it's when I said I was going to listen, but I didn't really because I thought I knew the answer. And then I went out and I blundered it and I blew my opportunity. So some things I tried to do and didn't succeed at, it was because of that. But so to back to I'm now retired. So this is, uh, you know, a few years ago, I'm retired. I'm enjoying sort of a pleasant life and I've gotten involved with this you know, spirituality center, retreat and conference center, and, you know, kind of involved in the second half of life. That's a sort of a generous thing, you know, a second half of life as if you really have a half. It's more like the two minute warning, you know, you've got, (laughs) you know, you got to call timeouts all the time. So you get as much time on the clock. But so COVID happens and, you know, and I, and it's like, wow, this is something really sincere. This is a big issue. It's not just like a an inconvenience kind of thing. And I begin looking at it in a number of uh, dimensions, you know. And one of them uh, that I thought of, and um, uh, is that, I, and I began to listen to Buddhists. You know, I was raised a Catholic, but in later years, I've become a little bit more Buddhist in my thinking. And the Buddhists have this notion of, of elements of life being noble. And noble usually means that they're very difficult. Uh, suffering, for instance, is, no, is a noble truth because it's difficult, but it is through suffering that we learn something vital and crucial in our lives. And uh, I heard a, a, 
monk who's a devotee of Thich Nhat Hanh, whom I have great, great respect for, is one of the wisest people on the planet. Very near death right now, but, you know, he's lived a great, great life. Um, and this man talked about this being a noble moment, the, the pandemic crisis. It puts hum, humankind in, in a crisis. And, you know, like when a person is in crisis, you, it, it means you, uh, the, the Chinese word for crisis is wei ji. And it means there's danger and it's a crossroads. So the crossroads means there's numerous paths out of the crossroads. And I love your book, which, you know, Pandemic Aftermath, in which you, you take a walk up a number of these pathways, some of which are really going into a bad neighborhood, uh, and others of which are yeah. potentially uh, okay, but with conditions. So uh, the question is, how do you emerge? How does humankind emerge from this particular crossroads? Well, it happens that, you know, some of the things I did after my, you know, California days, I came back here in New York uh, City. I worked for the State University of New York, and I got involved helping small business. This was not necessarily technology business, but after the financial crisis in 2008, uh, we set up an activity which was helping uh, just average people set up their own business, you know, an entrepreneurship training activity on steroids, where we were teaching right. 600 people a year how to create a business because uh, they couldn't get work uh, or grow their own business. So with that, and a lot of it happened because we, we put them in peer groups and people learn very well as adults from that process. So essentially, we created this um, model for a new program for uh, creating uh, help for new businesses that were all being shut down because of COVID. So that's what brought me out of retirement is, okay, we, we've got this opportunity. I knew some people uh, that I had worked with who could develop this with me. And we're now doing this on Long Island uh, through Stony Brook University. We did a pilot, which was successful. We found some sponsors for it. So we're launching into doing this uh, probably for another year to help the businesses there to recover. So, I mean, that's, that's well, I mean, one that example. Seems to, to yeah. But it's a big opportunity. I was just listening to a podcast uh, on the Knowledge Project uh, uh, last night, an older po podcast from April, I think it was recorded with the investor, uh, Dana Ackman was in, interviewed and he said, well, you know, bringing, helping bringing uh, businesses back uh, after COVID is a, is a massive investment opportunity. I think he was thinking about all these restaurants that are closed that are not going to have the funds or not likely going to get, you know, government or any other bank loans or guarantees fast enough to actually open when they can open. So it seems to me that there are so many opportunities here that are both kind of social ingenuity and, 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 you know, really helping people, but also in real, real true investment opportunities to rescue businesses from, from this melt, which really is going to be a meltdown, right? I mean, without doubt, this is one of the most significant meltdown of, Main Street businesses uh, that we will ever see. Yeah, no, oh, that's is for that, sure. I mean, but is that not the truth? I mean, w w what is the mood out there of the people that you are helping? W what are they telling you? Are they do they want to go back in some fashion, or are they actually refashioning their entire careers? Well, you know, it, I mean, it depends. Obviously, it's a, it, it, you know, moods come in ranges. I, you know, when we first started, we didn't really know. On the pilot, we were like. Uh, People have been sitting around doing nothing, and they we expected them actually to be more depressed than we saw. So we we yeah. thought, wow, where people are going to be really depressed, or we're going to have to really pump up their hope. And and rebuilding hope is an important part. And that was one thing I remembered from the crisis work in the early days is is you have to people have to feel understood and that they have some hope and. Be, Building yeah. this little support. So what we do is we put people in a small group, four or five people, and and we we tell them that you're making a little commitment here. You're you're all going to work with each other on each other's problems. You know, we'll we'll get into the small group and we do it a whole bunch of times during the uh, four times we meet for them. Uh, and when you're talking, other people are going to kick in and brainstorm ideas, and then you have to put up your time to brainstorm ideas with them. 
And it's amazing that people have been sitting there thinking about their own thing and they're stuck. They just can't get any new ideas. But the minute they start talking with other people, the ideas flow because people are generally creative. And then this process gets them hopeful because they see, even if they see it for someone else, it's like, hey, wow, I, I like that. And then boom, next week it clicks for them. So Oh, wow. So happen. it's really a support community. It's not just yeah. you yeah. sharing your wealth. It's basically no, yeah, it's not, it's bringing are, them together. We're, yeah. we're the, we're the, uh, we're the coaches sort of, you know, the, the, uh, and they help each other. And that's what I love about it because it's, it's, it's main street helping main street. And then we really try to encourage them to work together. So, you know, if, so uh, just an example here. So there was a, a woman with a retail store. She was thinking about maybe doing some exclusive shopping, you know, because she does high end goods. So, okay, she's going to have yeah. just a closed store with just one or two people shopping. So I, I said, well, why don't you team up with um, a local restaurant that, that could provide you some nice tapas and really nice specialty coffees or something because they don't have enough business. And it would make your yeah. specialized shopping experience a little bit nicer and everyone makes a little bit more money. And the rich people are not going to mind spending more money because it makes the experience really special. Throw in some champagne, you bring in another business. So it's that sort of thing that you start to, uh, to, to see happening. And, um, you know, that's, well, that's, that's really, that's really hopeful because I mean, you know, this even ties in with what, uh, every marketeer out there is saying, you know, experience is, is the, is the name of the game. Um, and, and arguably that's perhaps where main street hasn't really exploited, you know, their unique strengths, which, which is to, to provide those deep experiences. So you're right. saying you're, you're seeing opportunities for that to happen in a way that no one really thought before, because if you said you're, g- you're going to limit yourself to three people in the store, I mean, you'd be nuts. You're like in a pre-COVID environment, you know, you're saying, well, then I would close down rather than you right. know, start investigating some new experience business. This entire concept, though, I mean, sort of depends on a certain version of COVID continuing, which I mean, I think perhaps you and I have already brought on board as this is our future here, right? I mean, I certainly see that the next decade is going to be very controlled and uh, it's going to be kind of shut down after shutdown. So, you know, we are looking at a very constrained social and commercial right. sphere for, for the foreseeable future. So these, these things are interesting. Yeah. And I think that because of what you just said, I think we're looking at a business environment that has to be experimental all the time. You know, people are used to running a business where you just kind of do the same thing, fill your tax returns and do another year. And we have to get people used to being very agile on always constantly ready to shift. And that's what we, that's why we call our thing pandemic shift, because you have to be ready. It's like you're on the basketball court. You have to be shifting your weight. You have to be ready to pivot depending on what the next three months are going to be like. And, and that's how you're going to have to be in business. So, so but the fascinating thing about it, right. Is that this is another business that's, you know, if you just talk about retail that people sort of had given up on in the sense that, you know, it's like, Oh, it's all going online and yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. And there'll be some experience shops, but uh, you know, the big brands will be running those here. You're essentially charting a completely different future. You're saying as long as you can get these main street business folks to really engage in this continuous experimentation i mean the physical infrastructure is there you just got to use it in a new way yeah i mean i think the malls are in tough shape because you know people are not going to want to get into a place where there's a couple of hundred people you know but again because we really don't know what is going to be there in a year or two years so it's it's we have to be fluid thinking about the pandemic buy the book pandemic aftermath how coronavirus changes global society by trun unheim was published by atmosphere press in 2020 putting the pandemic into the context of the two historical precedents, the Black Death and the influenza of 2018. Five scenarios are considered to be relevant for our understanding of the next decade. The five scenarios are borderless world, nation state renewal, two worlds apart, Habitian chaos, and status quo. 
The first portion of the book is non-fiction. The second portion of the book is fiction. If you are at all curious, you can get this book everywhere books are sold and can learn more at pandemic-aftermath.com. Try to help people learn how to be fluid. That's what, that's what we're, you know, we, we play with the, the game of, of what does shifting mean. It's like you're driving a, you know, a, a car with a stick, you know, and you have to be, you have to learn how to use the stick again. No, Americans don't know how to use the stick. You know, everyone's got an automatic transmission. It changes automatically. It isn't going to change automatically. You have to choose what gear you're in and where you're going. And obviously we're playing a game with the, uh, with this metaphor, but we're trying to teach people how to take control of that lever. Who are your customers? Who are your partners? How do you distribute? All of this has to be consciously thought about, and we're trying to give them a systematic way to think about that. So it's it's kind Have of. Have you fun. worked with people at malls uh, as well? Are some of these businesses in malls, or are they typically more in downtown areas? Well, so far, it's more the more the non-mall businesses. It's more the you know downtown uh, folks. And a lot of that is because of where we're at out on the edge of Long Island. Um, but uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll see some mall based businesses, you know, and so we'll, we'll see as we, well, the as mall we... is a whole separate problem, right? Because they are usually tenants uh, and, and, you know, they're, I guess, stuck sometimes in, in these uh, well, tenant agreements the, with yeah, these mall the operators. Are, are, are parts of bigger businesses. So that's not so much the, the segment we're worrying about. So we're, we're, worrying about um generally independently owned businesses there are some franchises who are you know kind of uh, paying attention to uh, but that's you know that's a lot of what that activity is is going to be and and this is at the early stage so much of what i'm saying uh, you know we talked if we talked uh, eight months from now i would have a lot more learned things to say most of what i'm saying is is, is sort so of i wanted to bring in the other project you're working on but yeah i wanted to bring in the other project you're working on but but my main question to in all of this is is obviously this this whole question of channeling this energy for the second half of life i'm really fascinated you know as someone who's i guess not yet at my second half of life or i guess technically i am just about to enter it and assuming you know if you're super lucky you could live until you're 90 plus something i guess i'm exactly at the uh, uh second half of life but but this whole energy that you have around this kind of next stage of your life how would you for one i mean is it common to have this kind of energy and two when you think about channeling it, and we'll, we'll talk about another project you've been involved with, the U.S.-China kind of project yeah. in, a, in a moment, but how do, you, how do you get that kind of energy when you've done so many things and, you know, you could literally just go out in your garden and, you know, tend to a beautiful garden or you could, I, I don't know, you know, there are many things to do. Why would you then embark on other complex, difficult things, Tom? Well, I think, I mean, some of it is because of COVID, uh, because I have in, in, you know, over the last few years, I have spent a fair amount of time in my garden and, you know, pondering things. I did get involved. I, I will say, though, that part of it is I got involved with this retreating conference center, which uh, and and I had an interesting experience. I, I, I am, you know, a, a Catholic from years ago. I'm not really much of a practicing uh, Catholic. I don't go to church. I but I do have a spiritual bone in me for sure. And when I first went to this place, I had a moment which I would call a calling. You know, I was there and it was like one of these moments when, woo, I, and, and it was like, I felt called to do something at this place. And, and it turns out I, I joined a men's group, which happens to meet at this place. This is a group of men they've been meeting for years. And I enjoy it very much. It's a chance to sit and talk about real life with a group of guys who are mostly around my age. Some of them are a little older, some of them a little bit younger. Um, along the way, I offered to help the uh, place itself, which is run by the Sisters of Mercy. Uh, so there's a couple of nuns in residence and there's a bunch of other, you know, lay people who do things there. And I 
learned that they have this program called the school for the second half of life, which intrigued me. You know, I said, well, what's that all about? You know, and it's like, uh, there are some, Carl Jung talked about the second half of life, which is when you switch from being, you know, all ego and, uh, and built around generating money and uh, creating a family and raising a lot, uh, you know, defending your family and so forth. And you switch into more of a, thinking about the purpose of life and so forth. Um, and this school is set up for people who are at the stage when they are trying to think about what are they, what's the purpose of their life and what do they want to do in the rest of their life? And there's a more modern spiritualist named Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest who's done a bit of writing about that, quite good writing about it. And, uh, so I was intrigued with that, and this comes up in discussion in, in our men's group some. And I became fascinated enough to get to know the people that run that program and participated in some of their activities. Well, I got myself involved in a future task force for the future of this um, retreat and conference center, because the Sisters of Mercy are now uh, kind of going out of business. They're you know, that business model of attracting young women to a life of chastity and obedience and no money, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a great business model, shall we say. So the average age of the Sister of Mercy is getting near 80. But they, ha- they are very uh, uh, admirable people, and they have spent uh, lifetimes dedicated to social justice. Their concerns are pretty much the same concerns that an awful lot of people in this country have about, you know, anti-racism, support for women's rights, anti-violence, support the immigrant and care for the earth. Those are their five critical concerns. And it sounds an awful lot like what a lot of uh, you see on, uh, on the anti-Trump uh, agenda. Uh, and um, anyway, I began to think that this place um, and especially now, as I see where the country is going, this place could be a gathering place because they're bringing in people to participate in this second half of life who are looking for a purpose in life and who have these values typically. Well, what if we gathered them as cadres and started to give them opportunities to practice, not just talk about, mm-hmm. it's nice to have philosophy and poetry, but then here's where COVID comes in. So COVID comes in and messes things up and and where you start to really worry about things. And then doubling down on it, we begin to see the uh, negative uh, direction of of the country's uh, uh, policies. And I think there's now a lot of people. Now, when I look at my generation, and I use the term my generation with quotes around it because I think of the Who song. And, you know, we were radicalized 40, 50 years ago. You know, we were all concerned about the war, but then once we got radicalized about that, we got radicalized about all those other issues too. So there's a lot of us who have it in us. It's just wake it back up. And it's awake in a lot of my friends, a lot of the men in that men's group and a lot of other people I know. But I want to hear more about that. Are you saying that the 60s are going to wake up again in the form of of basically the same cohort that had that radicalization and it's been latent and now things are getting so bad, your words, yes, that, um, I am saying that, that this I is, th- you're rising again? I, I see the potential of that. It's just the question of whether people will take that, you know, potential and turn it into kinetic energy you know you know tom the the reason i'm exploring this so deeply and i'm very intrigued by this is for for a while now and i'm I, i even worked in a place that was deeply steeped in this idea but you know marketers talk about generations as having had formative experiences when they're typically you know between 15 and 25 and that's kind of when life happens and then you know those are the life events that define them so in some ways, you're sort of confirming that because, you know, whatever you were when you were young, that is kind of your identity. But on the other hand, this perspective sometimes becomes very limiting because it sort of says you guys are done now because you did your thing back in the 60s and you're, you're never going to be different. And, you know, you were concerned about those issues then and now you have vested interests and and yes you are by the way i love tending to my garden there's nothing wrong with that in fact it's probably really healthy 
uh, to tend to your garden right now. But, but I mean, basically a lot of people are saying, well, you know, these old guys are just going to sit there tending to their garden. No, don't worry about them too much, mm-hmm. you know, just get, get their vote and carry on. So here's why I think it's potentially different. First of all, we're really the first generation that arrives at this point in life with the resources because, you know, everyone's got something, or not everyone, but a lot of people have a 401k or something like that. And a lifespan and physical energy. So the health is okay. So I've got somewhere, you know, my lifespan actuarially is maybe 11, 12 years. All right. So I've got some amount of time. Um, then, then there is COVID. And, you know, and this particular, you know, political situation. I think that combines for, um, for something that is calling. I mean, I hear my colleagues, not everybody, but I hear quite a number of people talking about how motivated they are, let's say, by Black Lives Matter. But this is white people talking. You know, they want to do something. Okay. Now the question is to figure out what. Okay, so there's a lot of people writing postcards for voting, et cetera. That's a good start. But I believe there is more energy on the table. And it's a matter of getting it organized in a way where it can do something useful. And at and the best would be uh if it could be combined, let's say, with some millennial effort. Because, you know, we don't have, a, a, you know, a lot of leg energy. The legs go first, you know, so we can do some marching, but not much. But we have some smarts, you know, and, and it would be a shame to waste that. Uh, but we can team up with grandchildren and, and other young people to, you know, to move things along. And that kind of, and a little bit brings us to that uh you know, uh, China America project, uh, too. Um, but I do think it's, t- it's almost, I almost feel like I, when I'm talking about this lately, you know, and I have been talking about it more since, since I first, you know, engaged with you about it. Cause I realized this is like a manifesto, you know, it's like, Hey, get out, get off the couch, you know, get out of the golf cart and do something. I don't, you know, you know what it is because everyone has their own thing that bothers them the most. You know, I'm very concerned about the environment. Some people are very concerned about racism. Others are very concerned about um, immigration or, or violence. Well, pick it. And then let's make it easier for people to get involved in not just political action, although political action is important, but in social action, because I think, you know, the government is being unbundled right now, and it's not easily going to be built up quickly enough to do the things at the working level that it has done. So I think some of the doing is going to have to be done by people, by citizens. And I think we're entering. And Tom, is it new generations of organizations and networks that are going to do this? Because you know, in the U.S., yeah. you know, it's a very big sector of already. I mean, in 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 the cohort we're talking about here, there's like Rotary groups and Kiwanis and all kinds of things all around the country. But you're you're talking about a different type of social movement uh, based activism that that kind of picks up new things in in slightly new ways. Well, you know, it could be some of those groups too, but I'm thinking it's more of a social justice orientation behind them than, than the, the Rotary groups and the Kiwanis have at this point in time. I, I think it's recognizing that it's, it's the work is some of the work that's now not being done by the government. Like, let's take the EPA. You know, there's, what is the EPA? There's, it's, you know, it's a, it's nothing right now. Well, I'm not saying that we're going to go out and do the, the literal work of the EPA, but but work on environmental matters. We're going to need more activism from citizens in, in that regard. And, uh, and I think uh, there are youngish groups who are very willing to work with older groups uh, mm. if this can be organized. I mean, this, is, this has to be done. This is now just the vision of it. It's not done. 
you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't mean to say that there's a lot of this that's done. I just see that there's, there's potential and, and I'm going to be working on it. I mean, that's something I'm going to be putting my time into working through this Mercy Center to try to make this happen over the next few years so that in a couple so of let's, years. Uh, th- let's talk a little bit about this China engagement of yeah, yours because sure. China is a big issue. And, and, and oftentimes I think that, um, you know, w- without uh, labeling you an elder, uh, I, and I mean elder in like a very positive sense. I mean, I, I do think that these discussions about China and the U.S. and the role of China globally, sometimes I feel as, uh, I feel as if, the, these discussions also become politicized really quickly, and you you seem to have a very different take on on what's needed. Uh, tell us a little bit about this Confucius Institute in America and how you have engaged on kind of the dialogue between young people in China and America. Because these dialogue initiatives, I think, they're very powerful. They've been done in many nations. Uh, there is a big yeah. program yeah. I know between the U.S. and Japan. There's a U.S. JLP, the U.S. Japan Leadership Forum. My my wife right. is part of that. Um, and now you're, uh, and, and obviously between Israel and Palestine, there have been various initiatives that uh, have been run by people in Norway and other countries to try to, you know, uh, approach those two issues. And and now between America and China, what, what's happening there? How did it start? And, and uh, what is the promise of that kind of dialogue? Well, I mean, I when I left uh, California, I came back to New York City, I took a position with um, a part of the State University of New York. It was a new institution called the Levin Institute. It was named after a man that actually died in the attack on the World Trade Centers. His name was Neil Levin. And um, the naming was done by the legislature of the state of New York in honor of all the people who died. And this institute was aimed at uh, international relations and business. So the idea was to focus on the theme of globalization and the importance of maintaining global relations in the sphere of, of business. So that was, that was the purpose, the mission of the place where I worked. So we were always looking for opportunities to build sort of international business relationships. So what happened in 2008? There was a big earthquake in China, in Sichuan province. This is this goes to the start, the 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 initial uh, beginning of this program. We're going to talk about after the earthquake. A man that I worked with, his name is Dennis Simon, who was a I met Dennis when he was a professor at MIT. Actually, uh, he had an idea. He said, "You know, it would be a great thing if we could offer scholarships for these students." You know, and the idea he mentioned the idea to the man who was the uh, chair of the board of regents. SUNY at the time, a man named Carl Hayden. And he liked the idea. He mentioned it to the governor, David Patterson. And long story short, this idea was put forward and done. Now, it happened in an incredibly short amount of time. Through the massive bureaucracies of China and, Amer- and America, 150 students were chosen out, chosen out of some 2,000 students and came to America in eight weeks and were distributed around New York State for a year of free education. And these students had got special treatment. Uh, they were not just regular foreign students. They were kind of given a, a kind of a person to take care of them at each campus. And the woman who is my partner um, was a colleague of mine at this Levin Institute. Her name is Wei Lin. She's about 20 years younger than me. Uh, she was sort of the den mother of these students, and it changed her life. Very, very clever woman, very well connected in both America and in China. But caring for these young people and seeing them, uh, by the way, the premier of China spoke to these students when he visited and told them he and the country expected them to play a role in the future relationships between the two countries. So he gave them a mandate. And by wow. the way, this this program was e- extremely highly regarded by the China leadership because education is so important. So I'm giving you that background because it opened the door to all sorts of things. Uh, first of all, it opened the door to establishing one of these Confucius Institutes, which is a sort of a big deal uh, 
program that is granted by the Chinese government of, of foreign affairs and education to all sorts of generally major research universities. Well, this was a small institution with about 12 staff, but we were partnered with a major university in Nanjing to operate the first uh, Confucius Institute for Business in North America, in New York City, at this uh, facility. Well, um, Wei Lin and I partnered with this group of 150 students when they were in America to uh, make give them a good experience in addition to what they were doing on campus as we introduced them to the American election process because they were here in 2008. Um, they went back, they had, and she maintained connections with them. So uh, 10 years after they graduated, they came back to the U.S. They had a little ceremony to thank the New York State for this great gift. And they made a modest gift of their own funds back to initiate a program which would bring American students to study in China. Well, Wei Lin thought it'd be a nice gesture to have the first program be students from my high school. And so we took that idea and created this program. My high school is a Jesuit high school. Uh, and so we named the program after this Jesuit named Matteo Ricci, who uh, basically brought Christianity to China in the 16th century. Uh, he did it with a Chinese man named Xu Guangqi, and together they were an example of this real, you know, east-west Chinese-European uh, connection that created a, uh, a unique um, cross-cultural engagement that really made it, opened a tremendous connection between east and west at that time. So originally they were supposed to travel there at this time, but that was, that was put aside by the COVID. But what we decided to was to begin this program uh, online. So we are now beginning it. Uh, we've had the students interacting. They're going to be doing a big project related to the U.S. election. But hmm. let me just step back and say, and ask the question, why are we doing this? As you look at the situation now, we're closing consulates, you know, we're, we're getting into a big antagonistic talking and minimal actions like that. Uh, against the, the backdrop of your book, where you're looking at these scenarios, which typically involve how is the antagonistic play between China and America and maybe Russia going to play out in the future? You know, when my view has been, is and has been ever, ever since I started working at another place, how do we co-manage the planet? How do we develop? You always can count on the leaders being antagonistic. How can we have groups of citizens who know enough about the other country so that they don't buy everything that comes down from leaders so that they, in fact, know people who work in the same field as they do, let's say, environmental science, et cetera, biology. How can you have people working together on pandemics, et cetera? Well, you do it by getting them to know each other when they're, well, in this case, they're going to be 16 years old, and they get to know each other, and you keep them together for long periods. They work together where they're in college and so forth. They become a, a growing cadre of of citizens who have connections and that's that's where this is going this is like you know it start has to start small because that's the only way you can start things but the idea is that it grows it goes to other schools it becomes a real movement of people who know each other and who have some sense of direct connection human connection with the other side so that all of this demonism that tends to get formulated about what the other people are like is has a counter it has a, has a counter in the experiences that people have so that's the idea hmm. so as we're kind of rounding up here how if if people in your generation widely uh want to get themselves mobilized in a different way or feel like you know gee this is interesting but 
I am not part of such a men's group and I, I'm not having that depth of discussion on social justice that I see that I actually kind of long for. Where do you go to get inspired to, to do? I mean, I'm, I'm going to link up some of the things you, you've been doing, but generally wh- where, how do you seek out those kinds of communities or do you just have to start it like you did embryonically on your own and then just grow it from there if you want to get engaged at this stage in your life? Yeah, I mean, I did start men's group back back when I was your age and younger because that was one of the things that the radicalized people, you know, when I was you know, 25 did, you know, back when uh, women were doing the same thing. We said, well, what the heck, men can do it too. But I found this men's group at this Mercy Center place. So I just started looking and you can find, I mean, they're not uh, a dime a dozen, but, but you can find uh, ways to do that. It's not uh, overly common. And I, I really hope you can find it because it's very nourishing to be able to talk honestly with other men about the things that uh, happen at every phase of life. Because every phase of life for a man might be slightly different than it is for a woman. And, you know, there, there are opportunities uh, to, t- to talk. Mm-hmm. And it, is, it opens you up for, you know, how really a lot of it is how do other people see it? How do other men wrestle with, you know, teenagers or teenagers leaving or, you know, or in my stage of life with, you know, parents dying, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of things that bear discussion. It's not therapy, you know, but, but obviously things come Mm -hmm. up there that are therapeutic uh, for sure. Uh, And so, I mean, I think the internet is a great place to start and, uh, and just, seeing where there are in Boston has got to be in, you know, in the Boston area, you know, it's the kind of place where it begets, uh, these kinds of conversations. A lot of stuff starts here. keep my ears open uh, for, you know, and of course some of my, all of my tea buddies, like when I talk about the things I'm doing, they say, Oh, geez, you know, you're, (laughs) I don't have time for that. (laughs) So, but it's not, I mean, you know, this is the truth about social, engagement, right? You can't, by definition, you're you're not going to engage everybody. So lastly then, Tom, I mean, are you cautiously optimistic then about the next decade? Or would you say that you're more kind of picking up this mantle because you're thoroughly pessimistic about this decade? No, I'm I'm not pessimistic because I, I think, and I think that's because I'm in action myself. And I think that, you know, when you're in action, then your own chemistry helps to define how your mood is. You know, if I were just sitting there watching the TV all the time, I would probably be, you know, horrified and and enraged. We we had I had a you know a, an old men's group actually that has now started meeting again. We were talking about what's the point of being enraged? Because that really ruins your day. You know, you have to do something with your rage if you have rage and because I'm doing a lot, I honestly don't have time for for rage. I've got I've got too many meetings I've got to prepare for. Uh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. No. I mean, that's really that's it. Because rage does. It, I'm not a fan of rage. I mean, it is. I, I love and then you know, we could end a little bit with just a, a call out to people like John Lewis, you know, who just died. I mean, the, and, and I have to say, you know, I. I learned a lot more. It's like with John Prine when he died, the songwriter. It's like I listened to all his stuff. I said, "Oh my God, what a great songwriter!" Same with John Lewis. It's like, what a great man. And you know, so I'm now watching a lot of him, and and it feeds it feeds my uh, my soul. I'll say to to think that I'm also walking somewhat on the pathway you know, of, of people like that. And that, that's, that, that helps, you know, to feel, to feel a a great sense of purpose in life. So I'm optimistic because, because I'm just doing the best I can. Uh, And that really is, is what matters at this stage of life. I'm not going to be able to do a miracle, but I'm doing the best I can. So when I do die, I'm going to feel good about it. Thank you so much, Tom. On that note, I'm going to end us. Thank you so much for sharing what you had to say today. I hope that um, our listeners took the message. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Tron. You're doing a great thing. All right. Bye-bye. 
You have just listened to episode 24 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of the second half of life. Our guest was Tom Mobus, founder of 10x Grow, whose mission is to help small companies grow in dramatic ways. We talked about our mutual background at MIT's Industrial Liaison Program, why Tom has come out of retirement for COVID-19, which, echoing Buddhist thinking, is a noble moment. He told us how he helps Main Street businesses pivot and learn to operate under new conditions and learn from each other. We discussed his project to connect young people in America and China to create wise people who will learn to collaborate before their minds are colored with what society tries to feed them. Finally, we learned how the protest generation of the 60s might be rising again and what they are concerned with now. My takeaway is that the second half of life is becoming a more and more central part of people's lives. We are healthier longer and have energy to give. The activism of the 60-plus generation is different because they are more mature, more balanced, and perhaps at times wiser. Some of this activity stems from men's groups where all kinds of experiences are discussed and where people are mobilized to act. They ask, what is the end contribution I want to have made to the world? I'm reminded that this is a question we can ask at any age. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.